there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Felipe Cardenas, who covers Atlanta United for The Athletic. We've had some great guests lately, including Flavio Sveter and Ricardo Fort, Matt Turner and Esmeralda Negron and Susie Petrocelli. So check those out. We're also doing post-game instant reactions to every U.S. game from the Gold Cup with Chris Whittingham and the Olympics with Christine Cupo. So be sure to subscribe for all of that. Now, here's my interview with Felipe Cardenas. Our guest now is a rising star writer for The Athletic. Felipe Cardenas is based in Atlanta and has done terrific work covering Atlanta United and writing on other soccer topics. He has been all over the story of Gabriel Heinze's recent firing and what has been going on behind the scenes at one of MLS's most popular clubs. Felipe, congrats on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Of course, Grant. Like, thanks for the invite. Happy to be here, man. There is a lot to talk about here, my friend. Um, you have been covering the Hainsey firing closer than anyone. What do you think were the main factors of Hainsey being let go so soon into his tenure after after just 13 MLS games? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still tr- like trying to find out like every single detail there. But if you go off of what the club uh, front office said, Darren Eels, President Darren Eels and sporting director Carlos Bocanegra, like they didn't really focus on results. And so it was more what they labeled as like a variety of, ish- a variety of issues um, that stemmed from a-, a leadership perspective. And if you go and listen to the press conference, you know, Darren spoke a lot about image and how to ca- and how an employee should carry themselves. Uh, and, and that's very important for Atlanta United, a big club that has a big brand, you know, across the country. So I, I think there's a little bit there. Clearly, the the feud with Joseph Martinez and Gabriel Heinze just did not help at all. You know, it's interesting that a coach comes in and immediately kind of not picks a fight, but like clearly like sets an example with one of the league's biggest stars and a symbol of this club, a beloved, a beloved player, um, a player that has a history of, of kind of being difficult with other managers as well. So there's a lot there, you know, the, the, the issues with training, the overtraining, I think it's just like a, a number of things that kind of led to this moment that we're and that Atlanta is currently in right now. At what point during what happened over the past week, and we're recording this on Wednesday, July 21st, coming out on Thursday, the 22nd. At what point did you think Heinze might be in trouble to lose his job? Definitely the week leading up to the New England match, which was this past Saturday. And, and that was when, you know, my sources began to tell me about, listen, what's happening with Joseph is, is, is not good. Uh, it's certainly not anything related to fitness. Uh, I had sources tell me that he was medically cleared to play over a week ago. So he had been in sort of this isolation um, punishment for over a week. Um, and, and that's when I knew something was 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 up. Something was not going to go well for, for either player, coach and club. It was something that they were going to have to deal with. And so plus the results just weren't there. You know, at the point before the New England game, they had gone seven games without a win. 
they lost on Saturday's New England eight game stretch without a win, which is a club record. And so now the results are piling up against the coach as well. Uh, but before that match, you know, Heinze was really honest with how and why he was dealing with a star player the way he was. He, he came out was super blunt about the fact that it wasn't fitness related. It was a coach's decision. Uh, he had his reasons and he was not going to discuss those reasons with us. Uh, but from there, uh, that's when you know, a reporter starts to find out like what's really going on. And my sources were telling me that it was not a good situation for the player. Uh, clearly, the front office was concerned about the fact that this player, Joseph Martinez, was to the point where he was like, maybe I shouldn't stay. Uh, and, and that's when you know there is going to have to be some sort of peace deal brokered between front office coach and player. And it, it, that's, the, that's what happened. We found out that happened after Atlanta lost to New England. But clearly the bed had been made for Gabriel Heinze. Joseph Martinez himself did a, a media press conference that a lot of people were on. Um, why do you think he did that? And did any specifics come out of it? <laughs> I mean, from, from what I wrote yesterday in, in my story, kind of like that deep dive on everything that's happened with Heinze, like there's a big part of that story that's about content and and the fact that MLS is a, is a league that that thrives on on content access to players access to coaches access to training facilities um, and, and there are a lot of clubs that do a great job with, with their content on, on social media. Atlanta used to be one of those clubs. They, I think in 2018, I mean, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure they won an award for like the best digital team. They were doing a great job. They had coaches. Tata Martino was always available. The players were available. They had star players, they had personalities. And, and that has just really diminished, you know, within Atlanta United. The, the roster is different. The players are different. And then you had a coach that just wasn't interested in being accessible and Gabriel Heinz. But again, he's always been like that. He was like that in Argentina. He's been open about that. This, these weren't mysteries to, to those that knew him well. Um, and, and so Joseph was another player that used to always kind of be out there after, after a, a big performance. We would get a availability with him. And he hadn't spoken to the press since late May. Now, there was Copa America involved in between that and World Cup qualifiers where he was away from Atlanta. But then he comes back and, you know, he's just like out of the picture. And so I think it was a, a way for the club to put their player back in front of the cameras, in front of the reporters and a way for the player to kind of profess his commitment to the club, which has was in question up until yesterday. I think it's still a little bit like up in the air, um, but it was his opportunity to say how much he loves Atlanta and how much he wants to stay and really like tell his side of the story, even though he did his best to kind of not talk about the issues with Gabriel Heinze. Based on what you know, and this could change obviously over time, because I think more is probably going to come out, but like, are we potentially headed toward like a legal case or a legal situation between Gabriel Heinze and and Atlanta United based on some of the things that have been said about him since he's been fired? You know, that's possible. You know, it's so early. Like this kind of broke this morning with uh, uh, the, one of the biggest papers in Argentina, La, La Nación, who spoke to people from uh, Gabriel Heinz's camp. And in that article, there was a mention of like a, a legal threat, like illegal action being taken on behalf of Gabriel Heinz's camp. So um, if he was fired for cause and that leads to the club not having to pay the rest of his two-year contract, he, he signed a two-year contract. My source told me, told me he had a, a third year as an option. 
if that's the case, well, then of course, you know, this could not, this may not be over. This may be far from over um, and it may get into a legal kind of playground. But again, it's it's too early. All we know is that Heinz's camp clearly is out there now talking, doing a little bit of damage control because as they mentioned it, they did feel like, whoa, this kind of came out uh, coincidentally the day after he was fired, the, referring to the Fox uh, article from Doug McIntyre. And it's certainly not the end of the story. You know, even when Frank DeBoer was fired, uh, you know, he I I managed to grab him. I think it was a month later, four or five weeks later. And, you know, his relationship with the front office was okay. You know, like I think he felt like the communication wasn't there. He didn't get the help he needed from a personnel perspective, but it didn't seem toxic. Like this one between the front office and Gabriel Heinze is feeling a little bit like it could be heading towards that direction. When you fire a new coach after 13 games that you signed for two years, like from a due diligence perspective, did Atlanta United do its due diligence on hiring Heinz? Some of this stuff was known about him when he was at Vela as an Argentina. It was known when he was, you know, first of all, as a player, like he had, like he just wasn't accessible at all. He always had, he's always had a, a relationship with the press that is uh, not, not good. It's like, he's kind of like an adverse, he sees them as an adversary. And, and there are all, probably only one or two reporters and journalists that Heinz believes are, are, are truthful in, 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 in the entire world. So <laughs> that's been like that since he was a player. And then he starts coaching and he has his very like untraditional sort of methods. You know, he is a Bielsa sort of disciple. Um, he's been open about that. You know, Marcelo Bielsa was his coach at the national team and, and they have a lot of similarities. I think, uh, like you said, it was well documented the way he approaches training, the way he sort of controls and motivates players, uh, the psychological aspect to that. And there are a lot of anecdotes from players. Like I did a lot of the reporting when he was hired about from players at Velas talking about like how it was difficult to adapt and there was a lot of running and even games were difficult at first. But, you know, in the end, he elevated these players and Velas were a, 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 very, a kind of a successful side under him. Third place finish with one of the youngest teams in Argentina qualified for the Copa Sudamericana and at Argentina's juniors. He put, took them from relegation football to the first division with a team of relatively unknown players that also just committed to this kind of crazy way of, of training and playing. So he is beloved by a lot of his players and he's sort of like this cult figure in a lot of circles in Argentina. So yes, it was pretty well known that he could have bring this sort of approach to MLS, which is a totally different league. As you know, Grant, it's like, there's a CBA, there are rules, there are, you know, rules around training. There's the, what we talked about, about access to the coaches and the players. So did Atlanta do their due diligence? They say that they did and that they, they don't, this is, this is from Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra that they don't, you don't know a candidate until he's in the building. Truly. Mm -hmm. That was the way that they framed this to say as if like they were surprised by how this is going to go. But I feel like there's, they shouldn't have been surprised. Like this coach knew what he was saying. He told us after new England, he, when he was asked if he felt like he had the support of the front office, he's like, I don't know. I don't need their support. They know how, how I work. They've been alongside me this whole time. So that was an interesting quote from him as well. Yeah. Now you're totally right about that. I, I mean, a lot of people, when I talk to him around the league, you know, we all saw Atlanta United win a league championship so early 
as a club and be so just together, like under Tata Martino and, and everything they built with him and, and Joseph and Miguel Almiron and others. Like, but like the question that comes up is like, when I talk to people, what happened to Atlanta United? Like, and I, I realize it's a complex answer, but it is wild to me to go to, from one extreme of being essentially the model club in the league or the model expansion team in the league and winning a title to being pretty adrift at this point, not that long after they won the title. It's certainly right now Atlanta United is a club in disarray, a club without direction. And, you know, Tata Martino was the club. He was the culture. He was the, the footballing idea, the philosophy of play. You know, MLS 3.0 was, was all about Atlanta United and the way that they recruit players and the way that they're going to play. And you're right. Like I was here in 2018 and you saw a team that was so together, like that the locker room was was awesome. Like just to be in there after games, it was, it was fun to see. And, and Tata Martino, you know, he, he also is similar to Heinz in a lot of ways. His training demands were, you know, were, were pretty demanding to the point where there was a CBA warning, you know, like, and he was kind of caught off guard. He was like, well, I didn't even know like this existed, you know, like, from what my sources tell me, he was like, whoa, sorry. Um, and his, his staff adjusted. Now he had people on his staff that knew MLS. He had one particular person, Dario Sala, who was a former FC Dallas goalkeeper, you know, a, a decorated career in South America, but he played in MLS, like over a hundred appearances, I believe. So that was key too, to know the league, to know like what sort of domestic player, American player could fit into this style of play and support some of these South American stars. And the South American players, from, from what my sources tell me, like they were the ones that were like setting the example in training all the time. Now they crossed the line because they got hurt from overtraining a little bit too, but there was that, that, that was the, the tone that was set. And since Tata has left um, and I, you know, did a lot of reporting on why he left, you know, his, his relationship just never started with, with Carlos Bocanegra, who's the sporting director. It, it was a, they fell out, they fell out. It never got started. You know, even the 2018 team, which won the championship, they were not on speaking terms throughout that year. And so he, that led to him leaving Tata Martino. Of course, he gets a great opportunity with Mexico, but still, you know, from what people tell me, you know, he was happy here, you know, and I think he wanted to stay even when Miguel Almiron was sold off. So they have not been able to replicate that recipe. You know, too many players have gone too much deconstruction of a roster that today looks like just an average MLS roster with a few young South American players that are promising. It's not the same quality as it was. And, and Frank DeBoer couldn't connect with that locker room. He couldn't connect with the club, couldn't connect with the city. Uh, he won trophies, but it just always felt like they were walking the plank under Frank DeBoer. And then this, the situation with Heinze just kind of lets you know that this club does not know who they want to be. Do you have any sense on whether Arthur Blank, the owner, is going to get even more involved moving forward? And also just how safe are the jobs of Carlos Bocanegra and Darren Eels in the front office? Yeah, it's that's something that I'm I'm really trying to find out. You know, I've I've spoken to some people that that tell me that it's that it is not true that Arthur Blank is simply unaware 
you know, that I, I think that's what people perceive and I don't blame them. Like he's not visible. He's not a visible part of Atlanta United the same way he is with the Atlanta Falcons every Sunday. He's talking to the media after a Falcons game. You catch him and I've been at a Falcons game. Like I, I did media one time just to see what that was like. And I walked down to the locker room, walked down to the postgame press conference. And there was Arthur in the hallway just taking questions. Um, that has never happened with Atlanta United. He's not there. He's at the games and he's fully aware of what's going on. But, you know, I think now there's this sense that he will become more involved. Um from what I know from speaking to sources, it's certainly a concern for him that, you know, the state of the club. And I think that, well, you know, when you have an owner or a boss that is concerned about the, the performance of two very important employees in Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra, I think the pressure is on them. You know, from what I know, they, they understand that. I think they've been somewhat open with, with reporters about the accountability that they have and how they need to get this right. But it's starting to sound like, once again, oh, we need to get the, the next hire right. And now we have to get the next hire right. And eventually, you know, that sort of script, you know, can, can lead to questions about whether they are, you know, apt to be in this job currently. Do you have any sense what direction Atlanta might take for their next coaching hire? Not, not 100%. Like I, I'm starting to hear like, yes, this is going to be a global search, but I think that's what you hear anytime there's a, a coaching vacancy. Uh, the situation with Atlanta is is different though. Like they're 13 games into the MLS regular season. Season, I believe there are 21 games left. You know, speaking of pressure, like this club has to make the playoffs. I think that is like the bare minimum requirement for any club of the stature. But for this front office, for the future of the club like two consecutive years missing the playoffs like I don't know how you justify just simply moving forward with the same leadership group so who wants to step in right now mid-season and try to do that with a team that you know has suffered a lot of injuries they're very young you're going to have players um, like George Bello, Miles Robinson, Brad Guzan, Ezekiel Barco and now Joseph Martinez are going to be away for international play international duty um, through August. And then when the world cup qualifiers begin in September, most of those players may be gone again. Uh, and so a, a coach has to want to step in and say, okay, yes, I'll take this team to the playoffs. Now, I don't know, Grant, like, are there international managers that are willing to fly over and, and step into the situation? Like maybe, um, but perhaps an MLS domestic hire, one that understands what this is, what, how, what it takes to get to the playoffs. Um, you know, how to perhaps model the tactics at this stage of the, of, of the, of the league when the team is struggling to just get results, you know, maybe that's the way they go, but we'll see it's early, even though Darren Eel said he wants to make a quick hire, like it's going to be really interesting where, what direction they go. Yeah. Uh, especially with the trend, it seems like this year, especially, but even previous years of, it seems like we're moving back to the American coach, uh, doing particularly well in, in MLS. I, I just think of Bruce Arena cackling up in New England right now. It's like his team is atop the East and uh, Greg Vanny's doing, you know, got the LA Galaxy playing well again in his first season out there. And um, I like, I'd like variation in the coaches in MLS. I like variation of where guys are from. I like variation of tactics, but you know, like 
Tata Martino came in and, and was able to win a championship. But at, at this point, he's sort of an outlier in terms of, of guys who don't have much experience in the U.S. coming in and doing well in MLS. I agree. And, and it's, and at the same time, it's like, it continues to elevate Tata Martino, you know, within the culture of MLS and the, and the, and the, the past of Atlanta United. Like, it's like, he's this coach that no one has been able to, to succeed really. Like, how do you succeed a legend, if you will? Like, so if Atlanta United decides, Hey, we've had problems with South American coaches, you know, that I think that's a personal decision because Tata Martino brought an entirely Argentine staff, you know, Dario Salahat is an Argentine. He had MLS experience, but he brought an entire Argentine staff, created that culture and won. So it's not like that doesn't work. They can't say that doesn't work. It worked. Uh, the European staff that Frank de Borg brought in, uh, you know, th- that had its, its difficulties as well. And you had a, you had a, a championship roster that, that de Boer took over. So a lot of people point to Darren Eels points to the, the success that Frank de Boer had, you know, but it's interesting because he, he still had the heart of that 2018 roster and then they just took it apart for him in 2020 just, you know, was, was what it was. So it's not just the coach in Atlanta's case. It's the project. Like, what is the project? What is the direction? What is the culture? Like, who do they want to be again? And so I agree, like the American coach is is trending in MLS. It's even starting to trend in Europe, like that, that their ability to translate to that sort of football as well. Uh, If they go in that direction, like, I don't know if that's the long-term play for Atlanta United. Um, we don't know. We don't know what this coach will want to do tactically as well. So it's it's completely like up in the air right now. From your perspective, how are Atlanta fans responding to all this? You know, I was asked a similar question recently, and and you know, I think what's changing in Atlanta, which I think is 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 great for the for the for the sport. It's not great to go through crisis, but sometimes clubs and fan bases need to experience that in order to really test their loyalty and to give the fans a voice about decision making. And, and you know, they're the ones that pay to go to these games. They're the ones that are buying the merchandise. They're the ones that are buying the, the number one selling Jersey. That was Miguel Amarones for so many years. And Joseph Martinez following, following that. Um, so they have a voice. And I think the, the vibe in Atlanta is one of um, frustration. You know, they, they love their club, but they don't love what they, what they're seeing right now. And, and, you know, Darren Eels and especially Carlos Bocanegra, Got a lot of credit, a lot of credit for, you know, landing Tata Martino and, and kind of how the 2017 inaugural season looked and felt. And then what happened this, the, the, the next year in 2018 when they won the championship. And, you know, they have very difficult jobs. They deserve credit. Um, but they've also seen the fans that, that those decisions that are made at the top level of a club can really uh, affect the future of, of, of a project. And they've seen players leave. They've seen players that wanted to stay leave. They've seen a great coach in Tata Martino um, leave and, and have really just a difficult relationship with, with, with some of the members of the front office. Um, some key people in the scouting department, Lucy Rushton has left. Now she's at DC United. She's a general manager. 
at DC United, a very accomplished and well-respected brain and mind in, in, in sort of like the tactical analysis of the sport. A lot of good people have left the club. And I think the fans are starting to see that. And, and there's a concern that like, where, like I said, where's the direction of this club? So I think in the end, those sort of um, those moments in a club's history help, you know, you have to get through those to be a consistently good club. Makes sense. Um, you had a great inside story about Atlanta United that included the revelation that Marcelo Bielsa had been in talks with Atlanta uh, at one point before their first season, and that didn't end particularly well, those talks. Uh, lots of other stuff in there about, the, uh, as you mentioned, the relationship between Tata Martino and Carlos Bocanegra. How much time did you put into that story? Because it, it was just absolutely fantastic. Um, well, thank you. Um, it was a two-year project. Like when I look back, I realized that when I, I started immediately after Tata left, like to find out like what's happening, like what's next. And, uh, you know, when Frank DeBoer was hired, it, that became my sort of story. Like, why did they hire Frank DeBoer? Like I didn't have, I wasn't really questioning his, his resume at the, at the beginning, I was more questioning like, what, this is like a big change in culture. Like, this is just a massive shift. Like why not kind of continue what Martino had, had done and perhaps gone through the Martino Bielsa tree. There are a lot of coaches that could have fit in immediately following that championship championship season. So that's where it started. And that's where my, my sourcing began. You know, I just started to meet people and, and they would pass me along to other people that knew a lot of information about the inner workings of Atlanta United from, from those years. Uh, and that's when I realized that one of the biggest stories of the Atlanta United uh, project was this, um, this, this kind of like just difficult dynamic between the front office and their coaches and some of their players and the way that they manage relationships with people uh, in particular, Carlos Bocanegra, you know, like a, very, a big name in U.S. soccer, you know, a very, a very accomplished player, um, but somebody that came into this role, very visible role with a very big new expansion team with little experience, like basically no experience at all. And that led to issues within the club. And so the more I talked to people, like I remember the day someone told me that they had spoken to Marcelo Bielsa and it was just kind of told to me like, no big deal. And I was like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> They interviewed Marcelo Bielsa and I was like, yeah, yeah, they, they traveled to France. And I was like, what? And so at first I was like, okay, maybe they just had a meeting. But when you find out what happened, the fact that Marcelo Bielsa wanted the job, like he was ready to just like pack his bags from at Mar in Marseille and fly to Atlanta and be the first coach. Um, but of course he wanted control. He wanted control of the soccer decisions. He made that very clear. I think those of us that know me, Bielsa can picture him saying that too, you know, like <laughs> you can probably see him saying that to Carlos Bocanegra and Darren Eels. And so they didn't call him back. It's just incredible that he was not considered. He wasn't even giving like a courtesy call really about, you know, maybe we're, we've decided to move in another direction. So it was a two-year project. It's one that um, was difficult at times. I remember thinking like, should I do this? You know, like this is not going to help my relationship uh, with some people, but um, there's a point in the process where you just feel obligated as a journalist to do it. You know, so many people have trusted you. You understand that this is truthful, well-sourced, well-reported, a uh, well-reported story. Um, and yeah, I'm proud of it. 
I wish we had a story kind of with that ambition for every MLS club. Now, obviously, Atlanta is a very prominent MLS club setting attendance records left and right. But like every MLS club has stories like this. And we've gotten a snapshot of a few clubs because the athletic does terrific coverage and, and there's some other good journalists in this league. But I am hoping that we get that type of scrutiny for every MLS club over time, because I think that is, is always a good thing when you can get a real, you know, granular sense of what's going on inside a a club and the history and the culture of that club. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit of your personal story. Like how, what did you done to sort of get yourself in this position where you're, you're doing great work covering Atlanta United, covering soccer for the athletic? Gosh, where to begin? Um, you know, well, for those that don't know, like I, I was born in Colombia, Cali, Colombia, and, and, but I, I, my parents moved to the U S when I was just under two years old, I was going to turn two with it. And they moved to Elkhart, Indiana, shortly wow. thereafter South Bend, Indiana. Uh, and so I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, like stones throw away from Notre Dame. I went to a Catholic high school, um, you know, and the, I, I grew up playing soccer there. I played all the way U 19 for, um, a great club called South Bend junior Irish, uh, two-time state runner-ups in 98, 96, and 97. Nice. Um, so soccer has always been part of my life. My dad is a, clearly a very big fan, and it's just been part of my culture. Every summer I was in Columbia as a kid, and you know, as a 10-year-old, I had. I remember my uncle took me to a game between America de Cali and, and Nacional de Medellin, and it was like Iquita was playing, Andres Escobar, Gareca was playing, like all these wow. great players. And I was 10, and it was like my uncle taking me to this stadium where there's there's riot police, there's police on horses, there's flares, everything's going on. You have to run and jump on a bus to get to the stadium. And so like, I've kind of lived the South American culture of, of football my entire life. And I remember just being intrigued by journalism as a kid. You know, my dad used to tell me, is that all you're going to read when I would pull out the sports section of the South Bend Tribune or USA Today or whatever it was? So I think I knew that I was interested and, 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 you know, Grant, like the way soccer is covered in South America, it's like literary in a way. And I was always so intrigued by the way the writers and the journalists were covering. So that's like, I think deep down, like how I've always been involved and interested in journalism, but, you know, I have a, I had a career in, in, in advertising, you know, I worked in communications my entire career, like corporate communications, marketing. And soccer was just this thing that I feel like I wanted to be a part of, you know, I think I, I always wanted to be a part of the American soccer community in some way. And so in 2017, I just started my own blog. It was called the near post run. And I was just like having fun with it, writing. Mm-hmm. And I connected with the guys at dirty South soccer. And I was like, Hey, like I'll write about Atlanta United if you guys will have me. And so I wrote some pieces for them, you know, and um, before I knew it, the athletic was sort of launching, you know, they were launching and, and Atlanta was going to be a, a, an important vertical for them. Um, and, you know, our mutual friend, Paul Tenorio reached out to me. He said, do you want to, would you be interested? And, and I think a lot of it had to do with culture. You know, there was a South American culture at the club. Um, I, I could communicate with the players and the coaches and sort of understand that part of their background. Uh, and so it was a great opportunity and I've been full-time since 2019 and just really fortunate, you know, to kind of be in this position and do what I love to do. You know, like I just, you know, soccer is something that I think we all understand is constantly evolving 
And so is journalism. And so to be in a position where a company like The Athletic, the editors we have, the team we have, we just want to be the best. You know, like we're a group that wants to be the best. And so that that has, I think, elevated everybody's work. Yeah, I'm a happy subscriber to The Athletic. So it's been a lot <laughs> of fun reading all your stuff. And, and you don't just cover Atlanta United. You've done stories on other topics as well. What, what are some of the favorite ones that you've done? Uh, you know, I think Copa America this past summer was, was fun to do because, um, again, it's a tournament like I grew up with as a kid. And, and you know, of course, you want to be there. You want to be at these stadiums and you want to be covering it. But it was interesting to cover that tournament from afar and, and kind of pitch stories that went beyond the pitch, you know, beyond the field and and watch Messi and watch Neymar kind of battle for that, like very important international trophy. So like all the coverage we did for Copa America was really fun. Um, you know, Mexico, El Tri, like just the biggest, most popular national team in the United States um, is, is sort of like a team that, that I've kind of grabbed onto as well. And I, there is that sort of familiarity with, with Tasa Martino as well. And that, that's a fun one to cover. Um, but I think just like anytime you can get into sort of like the international game and kind of help out our colleagues in the UK, um, those stories are fun. Um, but again, I think the story we mentioned about you know, Bielsa and sort of like the, 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 the thinking behind Atlanta United. I mean, that's been the most challenging story I've done. And I think the, 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 the feedback has been the most rewarding. Felipe Cardenas covers soccer and Atlanta United for the athletic Felipe, you're doing great stuff. Really appreciate you taking some time to come on the podcast. Thanks so much, Grant. Really appreciate it. Had fun. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Felipe Cardenas as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview with someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.